From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking back at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host and friend, Mr. Quinn Nelson. Hey, Stephen. How you doing, man? I'm good. How are you today? Oh, wow. I just had say Stephen, and it engaged um, the the digital assistant lady on my Mac, and I lost <laughs> you there for a second. <laughs> I don't know why that's enabled in the first case. Man, talk talk about demised tech products. <laughs> hey, uh, good week. It's okay. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about the Apple Three with you. It's a fun that's topic. Good. It is kind of a a little bit of a an odd week, and we did want to talk for just a second about the protests happening across the United States and, and elsewhere and our support for them. I certainly believe, and I know you do too, that um, racism should never be tolerated in any form. Change is long overdue. Um, and the events that are happening right now uh, are certainly spooky. They're certainly uh, different and unexpected, but um, it's it's time and has been time for a long time for things to happen. And we're definitely in support of, of what's going on. We have a, a link in the show notes uh, to a site called Ways You Can Help at blacklivematters.card.co. Uh, links to petitions, places to call or text your uh, legislative people in your area, donate um, FAQ, lots of really helpful stuff. I would also encourage you to find local organizations who may be working in this area, I know that uh, here in Memphis, we have several really good ones. I think that's true in a lot of places across the country. So um, it's definitely time for all of us to get involved and work together to eradicate the stain that is racism on our country. Okay. So today. Apple three. The Apple three. Oh, boy. Here, okay. Before we even get into this, I got to ask you a question about the Apple three, Stephen. Do you have one in your collection? I don't. I would <gasps> really like to have one. The problem is, as we'll talk today, there there mm-hmm. weren't many of them made. A lot of them got recalled, and to find like a complete one is pretty <laughs> tricky. <laughs> yeah, you see, I okay. We're going to talk about the sales numbers in a minute, and they're they're bad, but they're about the same, if not actually a little better than something like the Pippin, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before. And the Pippin, I don't know if it's because collectors don't value it or don't care about it but they're still relatively easy to find there's there's almost always more than a few on ebay at a given time and their prices are still reasonable but i've looked myself for apple threes in the past and frankly you just often don't even see them come up on ebay yeah currently as we record there's only one it's fifteen hundred dollars which is bananas It's in San Jose, and it is refurbished museum quality, they say, with the monitor and the disk drive, but no profile hard drive, which is like part of the whole ensemble, in my opinion. But, you know, Stephen, those pop up on eBay every once in a while, so I think you should just buy it. 1500 It's a bargain. This is not a deal where, like, you bought the... What did you buy when we recorded, so it was, like, gone by the time the show came out? Was it the Kin? The Kin. I did that. And then the Zunes. I went ham on the Zunes after that episode, I'm not buying Apple III today. Mm, okay well i mean that's too bad i'm my kin is sitting in a cupboard over there i already semi regret the purchase but i got a great deal on it so you know (laughs) (laughs) i didn't take very long we'll probably do a video on it here's the thing about the kin steven oh we're already getting off track we got to get on track but anyway you look at something like the zune and i went crazy i bought every single zune model 
I don't regret it at all. I, I'm not using them, but they have new music on them. They work really well and they're cool. The Kin uh, is bad. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> having spent money on it and then not being able to use any of the features because they were all cloud-based and then, you know, not wanting to anyway because it's a, a smartphone. I, it was kind of, I got it and I played around with it for five minutes and I was like, yeah, that's, that, that was a thing. Yep, I did. I did that. Look at me. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Apple okay. Three. Yeah. Before we even talk about the Apple Three, I really think we need to talk about the Apple Two, because while you may not have heard about the former, you certainly heard about the latter. And I guess to clarify, the latter meaning the Apple Two, because that was later in my list, not latter chronologically, because the Apple Two was first. Right. Two comes before three. A ladder to climb on the roof, not one of those. No, okay. no. And if you had an Apple III while climbing the ladder, you would most certainly die because they were extraordinarily heavy. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> the Apple II was one of the best 8-bit computers of its generation. And, and really, it was Apple's first mass market computer because the Apple I was made in extremely low volumes. They were built by hand. How many? Do you remember how many they made? It's like 500 or something, something like that? Something really small. But yeah, yeah, handmade. Few enough that, that they go on eBay now for a couple hundred thousand dollars whenever one pops up. Anyway, uh, it was released uh, back in 1977 at an introductory price of $1,298, which is such an interesting price. In today's money, that's about $5,500 reduce. Uh, now, the <laughs> Apple II was part of an increasingly popular lineup of computers targeted at a new market of users. Are you ready? home customers right up until the late 70s computers had really only been targeted at businesses and geeky computer uh, hobbyists and the apple ii along with a couple other computers kind of shifted that wave right yeah absolutely it it became something that was much more like a appliance something you would want in your home that you wouldn't be afraid of you know the apple one was a bare board Right, yeah. like that, there's that famous <laughs> picture of it in a wood case. But like someone just yep. made that case, right? Uh, the Apple One is just like you got a board and you had to solder a bunch of stuff to it. And mm-hmm. the Apple Two, being primarily designed by uh, Wozniak, it really was uh, a huge shift. So it was in this really nice plastic case where they spent lots of time designing it and going back and forth. And it was up against other machines of its day, right? The TRS-80, the Commodore PET 2001. Which is quite yes, the, the trash eighty. Quite the machine. Mm. <laughs> I was in London a couple of years ago, and in the I was in a museum, science museum. I went on the computer floor, and basically, I had a, a better collection than they did. Uh, but mm. they had a, a trash eighty like behind glass. I'm like, what are you doing, guys? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I've got my trash eighty in the back of a dusty storage unit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, you know, some some valid competition. Uh, I, I think the biggest, I don't want to say issue, but it was a reality was that the Apple II was the most expensive, right? They, these yeah. three computers were kind of referred to as the Trinity by Byte Magazine, and that's a term that's kind of stuck through the ages. Um, but the Apple II was more than double the price of the TRS-80 and $600 more expensive than the Commodore PET. Luckily, the Apple II, presumably, Stephen, justified its price premium, right? Yeah, I think it right? did. It was a computer that was very flexible, had lots of expansion ports so you could add cards to it and really make it your own. And you didn't have to be that hobbyist level person to do that. A lot of these were sold as products. You could just go into your local computer retailer, get the card you needed and install it with, you know, floppy disks and everything that that was needed. 
Uh, it also had the ability to display color graphics, which is one reason the classic Rainbow Apple logo exists. They wanted to show that multicolor capability. And it supported not only integer basic, but Apple's disk operating system, Apple DOS, as well. There's so many people, Quinn, who are like five to ten years older than me who learned mm-hmm. to program as young people on Apple IIs. It's it's a near universal experience if you're a developer, you know, in your 40s to, early, you know, mid to late 40s, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. If you started in that era, you probably did it on an Apple II. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Because here's the thing. I feel like the, I don't want to say the barrier to entry to development, because I, I probably get yelled at by a bunch of my developer friends who say, now is the best time to learn how to begin development. There's really good resources. You can check stuff out on Stack Overflow and all that stuff. But like, it's mature enough that I think that the the barrier to entry is a, a little higher. I mean, I discovered from an early age that I was not, I didn't have an aptitude for development. <laughs> I took a, uh, a C plus uh, or C sharp, it might've been computer programming class in high school. And well, it only took me one semester of that class to discover that I was never going to have a career in development. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe, you know, had I had an Apple II or even, you know, a Commodore, you know, 64 or something that I would have maybe been a little more drawn towards that because I love the hardware and I, I actually own these computers now and I love playing around with kind of simple basic and writing simple programs but then you try and get me to do something and even like swift playgrounds and I'm mm-hmm. like nah not interested don't yeah. care yeah, yeah. yeah. no I, anyway. I totally get it I, I feel the same way I feel like it is difficult to approach but but yeah the Apple II was a big deal for a lot of people for that reason and it really was Apple's first foray into success. You know, the Apple One was some dudes in a garage, but the Apple II was a real deal. And before long, it was a, a huge success. And there were multiple models. We're not going to get into all that today, but the Apple II line spun off many models, ran for a really long time. And in fact, until <laughs> until 1992, which is unbelievable. Oh my <laughs> Um, wow. But Apple did want to have a successor to it, the Apple III. So that's our topic mm. for today. De- well, let's talk about it then, right? All right. So de- development began in late 1978. So very early on, working on multiple computers. It was headed by Dr. Wendell Sander. He was uh, at Apple and Apple just wanted to be ready for the inevitability that the Apple II would need to be replaced. Uh, its co- internal codename was Sarah after his daughter, which I, I like. I like that. Remember the Lisa was uh, thought to be named as mm-hmm. after Steve's daughter, which he denied because he was a terrible person uh, for much of his <laughs> life. But yeah, yeah. anyways, so Apple pressed the team to have the machine ready in just 10 months. Mm, that's... Very fast. Very fast. And as you imagine, projects and the team began to expand, and it took a lot longer. It took two years to be completed, which is actually still really fast, Hmm. but boy. Well, let's talk about, I mean, we're going to talk about how maybe that quick development might have been at the peril of the Apple III success. But one area in which I think it has held up pretty well is the design. The, The Apple II, so the prior model, was designed by Jerry Manick, who 
had also uh, designed later designed the Apple III and then went on to design the original Macintosh. So the guy's got pretty good track record. Yeah. Um, the Apple III took many design cues from kind of the Apple II. Uh, it had the 45-degree chamfers around the edge of the keyboard and a stylized nameplate. What do you think about the look of the computer, Stephen? Uh, I think it's a computer that is not the prettiest thing Apple did in the 80s, but it mm. definitely has its own flavor. So if you look at it from the side... It looks like a kind of a beige box, but then the front of it is sort of warped up towards you a little bit. Yeah. But what, so on its own, the computer looks weird, but when you stack the monitor on it, or if you have some drives, you know, underneath the monitor, like as a stack, I think it, it flows pretty well. Okay. See, I, I think we may disagree in, in some certain aspect. I agree that the computer design itself looks a little odd. When you put the display on top of it, I think it looks actually pretty good it's not peak apple design but i think it looks good mm -hmm. where i start to have problems with it is when you add that optional profile hard disk it adds like a rib it's like a spine mm. that just raises the monitor up and it looks very monolithic and almost like evil to me i don't know it just looks very tall and intimidating and maybe that's just me but well i've got a link in the show notes to a bunch of pictures of it and so let us know uh on twitter what you think about how this thing looks. I agree with you with the profile drive in particular, the external hard drive, the display is a little too high. It kind of looks like it could topple over maybe. It does. Okay. So while the outside of the Apple three looks similar to the Apple two, the inside was in fact, very different. It was all new. The chassis was made of aluminum and Ooh. it had an enclosed power supply, which would come back to haunt the product at a later date. Now you might be wondering why do they have to put it in this big chunk in case of aluminum. Uh, it's because at, at the time, the FCC had not yet established its regulations on kind of EMI and, and kind of electromagnetic interference and all that right. stuff that now is regulated. And so to, to err on the safe side of not having to kind of redesign and resell should the new rules that were coming out mess up their existing design, they just put the whole thing in a big block of uh, aluminum, a big kind of, <laughs> you know, a shell, which, uh, as you can imagine, limits airflow. And then at the insistence of Steve Jobs, <laughs> there was no fan. Um, mm. Yikes. He did have a little bit of an involvement in the development of the three before kind of skipping out and getting bored to develop and work on the Lisa. He insisted no fan. And so basically you have this very hot little metal box. Mm. Which, not, great. Mm, not great. Not great at all. Uh, also, the Lisa, definitely a contender for a future episode. <laughs> yeah, another smashing success. Yeah. It's a great time for Apple. Uh-huh. <laughs> So the three was powered by, I hope you're sitting down for this, Quinn, mm. a 1.8 megahertz, 8-bit, 6502. Speedy. This processor normally had a limit of just 64 kilobytes of memory, but the Apple three could use up to 256. So the way they did this is you would have multiple banks of memory and you would switch between them rapidly. Mm. This was a technique used by others, including on some of the Apple twos, but a really clever workaround to the limitations of the CPU. That is interesting. One other thing that's that's a bit interesting about the three is that it included a floppy drive in the main machine. Uh, in the July 1980 edition of Byte magazine, there was this big article on the three that included a bit about Apple's decision to integrate it directly into the device, and um, also why the display, uh, you know, was was built in. They say we no longer consider the floppy drive disk to be a peripheral device. It is an integral part of today's computer systems, says Apple 
product marketing manager, Don Bryson, the decision to keep the video monitor as a separate offboard unit was dictated by the fact that the computer would otherwise not be portable enough. We wanted Apple III users to be able to take their machines from the office at night to home and back. Wow. Um, sure. I mean, I don't know that I'd really want to lug mine around, but I, I can see it. This was like such a thing in this time, like in the in the original Macintosh, like ads, it's like someone's on a bicycle, you know, like a basket mm-hmm. on the front of their bike and like they had their Macintosh in it. It's like, <laughs> cool, like mm, I guess. I mean, yeah. there was no real alternative at the time, but today yeah. through our eyes, it seems sort of funny. Yeah, you couldn't, uh, backpacks weren't big enough back then. Mm-mm. They didn't have these Kickstarters with all these enormous travel backpacks. That wouldn't fit in your, your Jan Sport. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're going to buy two really expensive displays and just mm-hmm. shuffle it around. I mean, the floppy disk thing makes a ton of sense, right? At this point, right. this Wasn't was... Really. You had to. You had to do there it. There was no other option, mm-hmm. right? The monitor, I think they could have just slapped it all together. I'm just kidding. I think it looks fine regardless and who cares if it's a separate device in fact from a reparability standpoint it's quite a bit better well and and flexibility right if you didn't want to use apple's monitor for some reason that's true you could get away with with something else so uh, to manage this the threes logic board had the disk drive controller integrated right in a lot of apple II users had to have an expansion card to use certain disk drives Uh, this was good news because the apple III only had four expansion slots, which was down for most Apple II models. The three also bought, brought improvements in the graphics department. Uh, if you remember, I think the Apple II had 40 columns of, of text, right? Is that correct? I think so. The Apple III doubled that up to 80 columns. So you have 80 column, 24 lines. Um, that gives you an effective resolution of 560 by 192 if you're displaying in black and white. And then if you're displaying in 16 colors or in shades of gray, um, that basically halves the vertical resolution to 280 or a horizontal resolution from 280 to 192. But, you know, a, a big upgrade in terms of specifications from the Apple II model that it was attempting to replace. So, we talked about how the expansion slots were a little bit limited. Let's talk about some of them. Okay. Users could purchase external disk drives. Uh, one was named the Disk 3, and then starting a year after that, the external hard drive became available named the Profile, and that's one we've kind of mentioned earlier on the show. And that was the one that was designed to sit in between the computer and the display. The Profile, when released, was priced at, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Hard drives were very expensive back then. $3,499, but it did have a very large five megabyte storage. Woo. Yeah, pretty pretty big pool, right? Uh, it also required a peripheral slot for its controller card, and so that kind of sucked up one of your remaining spaces. And this kind of gets into some of the problems <laughs> that mm-hmm. the Apple III had. The Apple II line had benefited greatly from its open nature. Part of that was just kind of the culture of computer users at the time and the culture of early Apple. The three had made it harder to develop for, especially when it came to drivers that were needed to operate expansion cards. And so much of the work required to write these was dependent on documentation from Apple, which frankly was was non-existent. It, it was a real problem. And it will be kind of a thing that plagues the, the Apple three through its very short lifespan. It's such an interesting story. The Apple II had this huge platform of users and 
software and, and everything else. And the three kind of built on its shoulders, but in other ways kind of dropped the ball too. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into that, but uh, we want to talk about the operating system that ran on the three. It was named the Sophisticated Operating System or SOS, uh, Apple SOS. Or SOS. Either is is bad. Yeah. Yeah. SOS, get the sauce. <laughs> uh, many features of sauce were groundbreaking for the time, including the file system used on those external hard disks. It was hmm. named HFS. Its successor. Hey, wait a minute. Yeah. I know that. Yeah. yeah. Its successor, HFS Plus, was just phased out of Macs and iOS devices just a couple of years ago. And now we have APFS. We do. Ding bell. Yeah. Yeah. Ding. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, tell me about Sauce. What did it do that was different from kind of what had come before? Yeah, so it really had three main utility programs. It had uh, device handling commands, so to, to interact with your other hardware. It had file handling commands. Again, thinking about you're going to hook a five megabyte hard drive up to it, you have to have ways to manipulate those files. So that was a big part of it. And then sure. you had the system configuration program or the SCP. This uh, whole deal would end up uh, to live on as Apple's ProDOS operating system and would show up on later Apple II models after the three had been canceled. Oh, Stephen. Mm, spoilers, please. Spoilers! <laughs> don't, don't, tell, don't tell them. They don't know yet. Okay, so this, this device, the Apple III, was released in spring of 1980 and then actually shipped in November of that year. Hey, Apple's kind of returned to a, a culture of announcing stuff months before it ships yet again. Anyway, yeah. um, I don't want to say that this machine was doomed from the start, but there was a big problem, Stephen. The Apple III was expensive as all get out. It had a starting price point of, are you ready? Uh, mm -hmm. Let's remember the, the Apple II began with a starting price point of, what was it, $1,200, something like that? Yeah, we said $1,300, $1,298. Well, the Apple III had a starting price point of $4,340 and could be specced up to $7,800. Yeah, you think that new $6,000 Mac Pro is expensive? Well, with inflation, the Apple III had a starting price point of nearly $13,500 in today's money with the fully loaded configurations going for $24,200. Oh, you know what? I guess it is cheaper than the current Mac Pro. Wow. Well, when fully loaded, the entry level price is more than double. Wow. Which is, that's a lot of money. That's bananas. And and computers were expensive back then, right? They were not not a commodity like they are today, but Apple's own computer, the Apple III was attempting to kind of uh, live alongside and then eventually replace was so much more money than the Apple II, which was already more expensive than most home computers that were kind of entering the market like the TRS-80 and the Commodore PET. Yeah. Yikes. So this is miles off the mark. So that price is really probably outrageous, but there were things that were attractive about the the machine. So there's a, there's a lot to consider here with the price. Um Apple was big into R&D spending during these times. Mm -hmm. And during that sort of spend of the Apple III, the Apple II had been put on the back burner. Uh, in fact, there was maybe shortages of the Apple II in parts of the country. People couldn't get them. Uh, there was real demand for them, and Apple just wasn't keeping up. So <laughs> the three could have been a decent option in a market where the two wasn't readily available had it been cheaper and more reliable. But... Um, it, it wasn't those things. 
<laughs> yeah, so let's talk about some of the many issues that it began having. Uh, because unfortunately, it had both software and hardware problems. Uh, let's talk about the software first, because that's the stuff that was less problematic. Uh, Sauce had a lot of advantages, which we've discussed earlier, but it wasn't backwards compatible with DOS 3.2 and 3.3, which is what most Apple II software had been written on. So there was emulation for the Apple II on Apple III. And according to Don Bryson, talking to Byte Magazine in 1980, uh, he said the Apple II emulation is true emulation. You'll be locked into a 40-character uppercase mode. Um, at a later point in time, an 80-column mode did become later available in, in Apple II computers with the addition of an 80-column card. Although it had an Apple II emulation mode, uh, the Apple III really worked best with software written specifically to take advantage of its proprietary sauce, which is not unsurprising, right? You want software that has been natively written to run on the OS that you're on. Yeah. And we had kind of a similar transition back in the kind of power PC to Intel days. Um, or, or a better example, I should say, is, is the Mac OS 9 to Mac OS 10 days. Um, there was Mac OS 9 classic emulation in Mac OS 10. And I remember my dad as a younger kid needing some software that hadn't made the jump to OS 10 yet. And so while I never really spent any time in, in Mac OS 9, my dad certainly did. And, and so there's kind of this awkward time where it's a transitionary period. The problem was with the Apple III was that um, the Apple III was so expensive <laughs> and not selling that well uh, relative to the Apple II, which was a computer that was very much alive, that it was difficult to get people to develop software for it. Um, and so what you have is this really, really good OS in theory that doesn't have any software written for it. Uh, to further amplify issues, it was a very, very good OS, but reportedly, at least the first couple of months of its existence, um, it was pretty buggy. Um, a distributor's representative responsible for Apple, for kind of going to Apple dealerships and setting the computers up to kind of teach the staff at the stores the new features of the models and how to pitch them to customers, uh, <laughs> stated the following. I'd have to explain to stores the functions of the Apple III, which in many cases really didn't work. Oh, Yikes. That's got to be a tough job. You show up like, hey, let me set this new thing. I'm like, it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. So kind of buggy OS. You don't have that many units that have been sold, and so there's not really any software being written <laughs> to to take advantage of the the powerful computer. And then Apple II emulation, which is what you'd have to do most of the time. Which again, why would you do that if you were buying such a more expensive computer? Uh, it wasn't really that great either. So the software was a bit of a struggle. But the good thing is, is the hardware was really great. Right, Stephen? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to that after our break. How about that? Okay. Well, that sounds good. Let's do it. This episode of Flashback is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends at Smile. Text Expander lets you use abbreviations to expand simple things that you type every day, like your phone number or email address, physical address, but it can do so much more. You can have fill-ins, pop-ups. You can fire Apple scripts with Text Expander, which I do pretty often. Mm -hmm. And you can use these tools together so you can send customized messages instead of just boilerplate text, although you can certainly do that too, making sure everyone in your team is sending approved communication out to customers uh, through the Text Expander for Companies program, which we use here at Relay FM. I've been using Text Expander for years. It's one of those things where my devices don't feel complete without it. I first discovered it when I was a Mac genius. We used it to make sure all of our case notes were sort of similar to each other. And I really love that it 
can provide me consistency and save time when I'm working. Text Expander updates your snippets across all of your devices, so they're available on macOS, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, iPad, and beyond. Flashback listeners will get 20% off their first year. Just go to textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. If you want to really dive deep, they got these cool webinars at textexpander.com slash webinar. Uh, everything from beginner to team, advanced, anything you want to find out. So go check it out, 20% off at textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to Text Expander for the support of this show and Relay FM. All right, so let's talk about hardware. So you had mentioned that the chassis was made of aluminum because the FCC was still implementing its regulations, and Apple didn't want to get in a situation where they had shipped a device and then they had to deal with regulatory issues after the fact. Right. So aluminum case, hot power supply, no fan, things, uh, it was not. It was not good. Things got hot in there. Um, this mm. was made worse due to the density of the machine. So we talked about its design phase, all that being short, and then they expanded it a little bit, but still, honestly, still pretty quick. To hit that, the case had been designed before the electronics were finalized. Oh. And engineers really struggled to get everything to fit. They had to stack some things. It was just, it was a nightmare. The Apple III was struggling a little bit in terms of heat. And as you can imagine, this has some, well, bad consequences. Uh, in 1981, just a few months before the three shipped, um, things were kind of coming to a head. Mike Markula, Apple's CEO at the time, was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal saying that it would be dishonest for me to sit here and say that it's perfect. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> yeah, right? However, he did say that he was committed to the product, saying that Apple designed it to have a 10-year lifespan and would be a major product for Apple over the next five to seven years. Okay, so you've got executive reassurances that this thing, despite its little rocky start, was going to be good, but users quickly became unhappy as there were reports showing up in computer magazines of people complaining that the case had gotten so hot to the touch that you almost couldn't touch it and that the five and a quarter inch floppy drive would scramble data on disks with some even complaining that the disks would be partially melted oh. upon ejecting from the computer. Oh my gosh. I was going to make a joke about Mac Mini because you touch the top of a Mac Mini when it's doing stuff and they are so incredibly warm, uncomfortably warm to the touch. I Hot, hot is the word I would use. Uh, I wouldn't say hot enough to cook an egg, but maybe the Apple III could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's troubling, clearly. Right. But uh, we got to get to the real doozy here. There were reports of chips working their way loose from the logic board. Uh-oh. There were a couple of possible reasons for this. The heat could cause flexing in the board. Right? If you're getting that hot, then you're cooling down, I guess, as your Apple III is in your bag on the bus home or something. Right. Uh, you know, maybe that could allow flexing and the chips okay. could be slowly pushed out. Yeah. Uh, but from what I read, that wouldn't really be possible unless the robotic manufacturing, which Apple was very proud of, unless that had failed. Uh, it seems that maybe some of these chips were inserted less than two-thirds of the way into their sockets. Mm. And so they're loose. Uh, they get shipped to you, right? Banged around in the back of a FedEx truck, and then the heating and cooling, it just all adds up. Yeah, that's not good. That kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, automotive manufacturing. Tesla, most notably, had 
tried to automate way more of car production than most automakers had priorly kind of attempted. And the end result was that things sucked. <laughs> Robots didn't make the, the cars very well. The machinery was very difficult to implement and maintain. Human, the thing about humans, uh, they're pretty good at stuff. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, not, not ideal. But this was the best part of, of this whole problem. Because you can't have chips that are, you know, coming out of their sockets. No. So what was Apple's solution? Uh, have you ever heard the phrase drop three inches in conjunction with this computer? I have. <laughs> yeah. Basically, what Apple support told users to do was to pick the front of their computers up off their desks, about three inches, and then drop it onto the desk to help reseat any of the loose components. Oh. <laughs> I'm just imagining you're a customer. Maybe you bought one of these for your small business. You call Apple, right? There's no online chat. You have to call them and say, hey, just going to pick it up and drop it. Just a few inches. Oh. It won't hurt anything. It'd blow your mind as a customer on the phone. Well, I can't decide what's more ridiculous, that or telling your customers to hold their laptops upside down at a 45-degree angle while spraying compressed air into the keyboard. Too soon, man. <laughs> <laughs> and yet not soon enough. Everyone, you're still under the, the program. So if your keyboard goes bad, go get it fixed because it will eventually. Uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> okay. So in a 1986 interview, uh, Sanders, who again was kind of in charge of the project, had said the following about the issues that the three had had. If we didn't get this thing out next month, Apple II sales are going to go down. We'll be liable. We're really dead. We're in big trouble. So they were kind of rushed to get things out the door too mm-hmm. much to the point where they probably could have fixed a lot of these early reliability problems if they had done better QA and better long-term testing. Because, again, a lot of these issues, most of them, were primarily mechanical. And as a result, kind of to the to large extent, a growing pain of a young company. Software, e- even back then, I mean, you didn't want to mess up software because it wasn't like today where you could just send out a patch over the internet. And it, it was a pain to screw up software. But that was at least easily fixable. Hardware isn't, right? <laughs> and so... Um, he goes on to say, we were growing, becoming a large manufacturer, and there were supportive quality activities. Component selection and things like that had not grown up with the company when it should have. Therefore, we were not in a position to do adequate component qualification and things of that sort. It caught up with us. I think if we had another six to nine months, those problems would have never appeared in the marketplace. This is actually a really fascinating interview. Um, we've linked it in the show notes, and you should definitely give it a read. Yeah, I'm sure it's tough to see like a project you worked on for a really long time is uh, bad mouthed across the world. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, for good reasons. It wasn't a good computer, but I think there's part of that where he kind of wants to explain what happened. Sure. And I think he does a good job of that without being defensive. Sure. I think so, too. Uh, so that all is pretty bad. But by uh, late 1981, less than a year on the market, they were reportedly selling 500 units a week. So that's good. That's not good. That's not good at all. And in fact, most of them were replacements. So in late 81 <laughs> or early 82, it's it's a little unclear exactly when a quiet hardware revision came to fix the whole, oh, no, my chips fell out problem. And you could uh, you could get a replacement unit. OK, well, that's that's good, at least. Uh, it doesn't fix kind of the power supplies breaking issue. It doesn't fix the you know, floppy drive melting inside the machine. But at least you don't have to drop your computer on the desk every couple of weeks. Uh, here's the thing. Uh, Sanders went on to say, 
When those problems were corrected, essentially a wholesale replacement of existing uh, motherboards went into place. The fact that this was done was really never highly publicized. There were some really dramatic efforts for Apple to follow up on its commitments on those things. And the problems were genuinely corrected totally in the marketplace. And yet the word never got out there very well. The, the reputation of the computer at this point is already not very good. And they corrected issues that were pressing, but just didn't seem to tell people. Maybe they didn't want to admit fault. I, I don't know. Apple has proven since then that they're not the best at that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Despite this hardware and motherboard revision, numbers just weren't picking up. It's reported that in early 1982, Apple had kind of upped their numbers a little bit, selling to about 5,000 units per month. But there was a big new problem on the market, and that was the IBM PC, right? The IBM PC had, had launched to much success in late 1981 and stole Apple 3's thunder. And potential developer base, causing most software companies to develop for it instead of Apple III. There was one more attempt in 1984 with the Apple III Plus. Mm, okay. Why Plus? Yeah. Why, why the name? Well, according to InfoWorld Magazine, we'll have a link to this in the show notes, the original three, despite being encased in aluminum, exceeded the radio frequency interference requirements established by the FCC. <laughs> so they put it in a box of lead or what are they? <laughs> yeah, make it even heavier. Uh, so the FCC yeah. demanded that the sale of the three be discontinued and the name be changed. So Apple three plus. Maybe it would have been more successful if they called it the Apple three pro max. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. So the new model came with standard 256 kilobytes of memory, uh, revised logic board and a built-in clock that actually worked. This had been a feature on previous Apple Threes, but it was kind of hit or miss. Mm. Uh, other improvements were Sauce version 1.3, an inclusion of standard DB25 connectors, so it was easier to hook the Apple Three up to other things, and a uh, slightly modified design for easier expansion card installation. Apparently that was tricky before. And uh, on top of all that... The retail price was dropped to just $2,500. And, uh, Ooh, that's good. That's a big drop. It is. And uh, in terms of Apple three sales, this is actually pretty good. It uh, sold a reported 70,000 to 120,000 units. Oh, that is. Oh, no, I think they, I think they sold like 50 or 60,000 of them. They had, they had sold 70,000 and then, this pushed them up to like 120,000 for the total okay. Apple III series sales. Okay, so, so it did still, its work there at the end. Still, <laughs> yeah, you know, it almost doubled sales in, get this, four months. Oh, no. <laughs> Why four months? Well, these efforts were ultimately not successful. The Apple III series as a whole was discontinued just four months after introducing the 3 Plus, um, which, by the way, was also unreliable. According to a source that I found of the 50,000-ish sold, it was reported that nearly 14,000 defective units had been had needed to be replaced. So, yikes. What is that? Almost a third? Yeah. Whew. Not great. Mm -mm. Uh, an outspoken critic of the computer was Apple's own Steve Wozniak, who said that the company lost, quote, infinite incalculable amounts of money, end quote. I mean, come, come on, Woz. I mean, everything's calculable. It was a defined number, but, you know, probably, yeah, sure, a lot of money. And had estimated that Apple had spent $100 million on the three instead of just making the two better and competing with IBM on the lower end. In a last-ditch jab, 
uh, Wozniak goes on to state that the system was, quote, designed by Apple's marketing department, unlike Apple's previous engineering-driven projects, end quote. That's, we know Woz is an engineer, and we know his statements towards Apple PR have, mm-hmm. have not always been kind. Sure. And, and I do think there is something, I mean, I think one of the reasons that the two was so accessible, and, and certainly later the Macintosh, is that it was designed for humans, for normal people, right? For mm-hmm. for normal end users, not nerdy, geeky computer enthusiasts like Wozniak. And so I do think they needed Apple needed to make computers approachable and friendly because they were intimidating for a lot of people. But you can't do it at the expense of the overall experience and reliability. So both sides are right, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, Woz, the two was his baby, right? So maybe yeah, there's true. some, some feelings in there. Yeah, a little bias there. So what can we learn? Oh, what can't we learn, Stephen? (laughs) (laughs) I I think about this, and I think about how many of these problems would have been avoidable if Apple had given the product enough time to develop the correct way. All like so much of this goes back to that. And I think that's a kind of recurring, recurring theme throughout all of our episodes. I mean, we even look at the last episode, like the Microsoft Kin, and it was in this awkward stage where the device was shipped too late for what it did but had it waited just a little bit longer for windows phone uh the windows phone 7 the operating system that it had kind of expected to ship with maybe the tides would have changed for microsoft's mobile game and development as a whole i mean you gotta ship stuff when they're ready and when they're good um and i think you need to know your product roadmap too in in the span of just a few years apple had worked on the lisa and the apple 3 and the Macintosh, which were all drastically different machines um, with drastically different use cases and customer bases. And it was just too much for a small company that had to allocate resources. And and they ended up just doing a lot of things not super great. Um, Luckily, the, the Macintosh, I think we can argue, ended up being quite a success. But even early Macintosh sales were not great, right? It took a long time for the Apple II to lose out to anything. And there was mm-hmm. a lot of internal division at Apple over it. And yeah, I mean, you think about this, these three projects that ran not perfectly in parallel, but there's definitely overlap, right? Sure. The Apple 3 Plus was introduced the time the Macintosh was. Right. Like, they didn't have a coherent strategy for it. They were so afraid the Apple II was just going to stop selling one day. In reality, was it was going to slow down. I don't think it would have come to a halt and Sure. 60 days, right? But they didn't know and they were nervous. They were a young company. And so they kind of put a lot of things out into the field and the Macintosh took off and the others didn't. But the Apple III, I think, could have had a chance had it been given more time and better resources. But but in hindsight, clearly the Lisa or the Mac was going to be the one to do it, right? The Apple III was still sort of from that 8-bit world of you're doing a lot of things by text, right? And the, the Lisa had a, uh, a graphic user interface. The Mac, of course, did. And that's why the Mac took off. And the 3, from a historical perspective, was never going to earn that spot. Sure. And they, they've kind of gone on to replicate that same idea since then. I, I think maybe to, to kind of understand Part of the vision was they they knew the Apple II, despite being a perfectly acceptable computer for the time, considering its competition, they knew they could do better, perhaps. Hmm. And so there was this drive and motivation to create something great. Um, And and I do think you see 
a lot of companies that begin to fail and experience financial difficulty when they become complacent. Um, they've got a cash cow, it's doing them well, and they kind of back off of development on new products because they think things are going to work out. Um, if you want a really recent example, look at Intel. Um, I think the whole company is on fire right now, and it's because they did nothing for so long, and AMD kind of came out of nowhere and kicked their butt. And there are instances of Apple kind of killing off entire product. I mean, you look at, like, uh, we've talked about the the iPod Mini and the iPod Nano. The iPad, iPod Mini was an insanely successful music player, the most successful iPod Apple had ever made. Mm-hmm. And then they come out and say, we're killing it. Because we're releasing the Nano, because this yeah. is a better product and we know it to be better. They didn't sell them alongside, which, you know, today is Apple. I would be hard-pressed to think that they would kill the iPod Mini if the iPod Nano were to release today. Hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. That's interesting. You know, I think sometimes you have to push the envelope and, and get stuff done Yeah. to kind of be ahead of the curve. But you have to do it smart, because if you don't, well, you get the Apple III. <laughs> All right, so next time on episode 10, as promised, we'll be talking about the Pebble. And then after episode 10, we'll be back in the fall with some more episodes. We're going to take the summer off, uh, but we'll be back in a couple weeks talking about the Pebble, which I'm very excited about. I'm excited too. I don't own one. You do. So you're going to have to... Yeah, I got to find it. It's on my list. It's in a box somewhere, I'm sure. Are you trying to tell me that you in 2020 don't continue to wear your pebble the best smartwatch ever made steven wow wow the audacity okay if you want to that for next week (laughs) if you want to find more resources (laughs) about the apple 3 check out our show notes at relay.fm slash flashback slash nine while you're there you can get in touch send us an email uh quinn where can people find you on the internet they can find me at snazzy q on all the socials and at youtube.com slash snazzy you can find me at 512pixels.net and find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next episode, Quinn, say goodbye. See you later. Adios.